Hello and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. I'm Joff Lacey and today we'll be discussing the role and reported merits uh, of neurocritical care as a distinct subspecialty and its position in modern healthcare. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Hilary Madder, consultant anaesthetist at the Alfred here in Melbourne, and up until reasonably recently, clinical director of neurointensive care at the John Radcliffe in Oxford in the United Kingdom. Hilary, many thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, so Hilary, in Australia, um, many, if not most, critically unwell neurological or neurosurgical patients uh, are cared for in general intensive care units. So units that uh, are managing a diverse range uh, of patients suffering from all manner of different illnesses. Um, but there's a growing emergence of specialised neurointensive care units um, that are in varying states of development around the world. Now, um, you ran one back in the UK. So maybe you could start by explaining um, the structure and the role of your unit back in Oxford and helping us understand uh, what constitutes a, a neurointensive care mm -hmm. unit. Okay, so in Oxford, we had um, initially a very small neurocritical care unit that was down in the original uh, Radcliffe Infirmary Hospital. And then we moved uh, up the road in 2006 to a purpose-built state-of-the-art centre with 18 uh, ventilated beds um, and very, very strong links to all of our referring hospitals. So we had a slightly different purpose to um, the general intensive care unit in that we felt we had to provide patient access and neurocritical care unit to sort of a wider patient population. Um, but at the same time, we also had very strong links with the general intensive care unit. So we would be part of a joint clinical governance group. We had shared protocols. Um, we had shared training uh, and shared equipment. Um, and then I guess the biggest focus was the um, facilities itself. So we were very much part of a um, an expert multidisciplinary team. So that included uh, neuro neurology, neurosurgery, um, but also uh, interventional neuroradiology and neurorehabilitation. Um, so I think that was probably a slightly different focus. Uh, we were always super busy. We, um, you know, we ran at 100% occupancy, uh, you know, all the time. And we, uh, we had the largest, we had a lot of sort of sick patients most of the patients were ventilated uh, and we, in fact, we contributed to ICNARC, which is the uh, UK general intensive care benchmarking. And we were the, uh, had the highest population of ventilated patients um, in the UK uh, because of our patient population. Um, but you were very much, from the sounds of so geographically and structurally separate to the ge general intensive care. Correct. Same floor. Yeah. So, in fact, the um, intensive care uh, services in Oxford are multi-sited, so they have a, um, a, a separate general intensive care unit at another hospital as well, at the right. Churchill Hospital. But we were on the same level as, uh, as the main hospital with a... Um, sort of a link corridor and then the same level obviously we had our own wing if you like with right. four neurosurgical theatres, uh, CT, MRI, angiography, um, all in the same building. Uh, all for you so to speak. All yeah. for us so all you know literally 
um, next next door. Mm. Uh, so you would, you know, and and the, the the sort of power of the MDT was very real. So if you, you know, wanted a scan, you could just nip in next door and you know speak, to, you know, to speak to one of the neuroradiologists to look at what sort of sequence of imaging, etc. If you thought a patient needed to go to theatre, you'd just go across to. Um, to the neurotheatres and sort of talk to the neurosurgeons. The neurosurgical on-call registrar, um, they were on site, so their on-call room and sort of study was actually on the neurocritical care unit. So it was really a very, um, it was a very much a, te a team approach. Mm. And then um, sort of upstairs was uh, neurophysiology and also neuropathology. So we actually had a lot of, you know, uh, neuropathology and sort of oncology mm. sort of testing and things uh, actually relating to our unit as well. And for the staff on the neurointensive care, so the consultants uh, and the nursing staff, were they also specifically only working on that neurointensive care or was there crossover to the general side so as well? So there was a little bit of crossover in terms of... Um, we were very keen to make sure that our general critical care skills were of an appropriate standard. Mm -hmm. And likewise, because we were so uh, full and always running over occupancy, there were um, certain patients, you know, when we, we had spillover into the general unit, so they also wanted to make sure that they were um, familiar with, you know, ICP management, but also EVDs, et cetera, external yeah. ventricular drains, et cetera. So we had sort of uh, a little bit of shared staffing and encouraged that. But in general, um, it, it was a dedicated uh, nursing and medical staffing. And, and would there be certain stages at which a, a primarily neurointensive care patient may be transferred to the general. So would there be times if, if ensuant multi-organ failure developed that it would then transition or how does that work? So um, absolutely. We would, we, we had, I mean, patients with acute brain injury have mm. lung injury as well. Mm. They invariably do. So we were very good at managing acute lung injury. And in fact, that was actually one of the things that set us apart uh, in terms of um, managing the, the balance between uh, managing acute lung injury and managing raised intracranial pressure because we often ignored the, uh, you know, the, we didn't hyperventilate patients. But uh, where patients developed, you know, really significant lung disease or perhaps where um, they may, have, may require renal replacement therapy, mm. we would certainly consult. And there was always a um, a balance of where should that patient be. So if it was felt that the patient would be better to be um, on the general uh, unit, they would go if they were stable to transfer. And if they weren't stable to transfer, um, then we would, the, you know, the, the general intensivist would come, would come down. And likewise, we would um, quite often have a patient that perhaps had an isolated head injury, but other significant abdominal injuries from trauma, et cetera. And they were more appropriate to be on the general ICU, but we would just continue our ward round at the end of our ward round and we'd all sort of traipse along to um, to the adult unit. And occasionally there were patients who presented, say, with refractory status epilepticus who were managed initially on the adult unit and then would be transferred to us for, you know, more specialist uh, neurological care. Now, I'm, I'm wary of ever drawing comparison between our two countries, but from your experience, how does that set up 
reflect the UK as a whole? And also, how does that compare to Australia? So the UK has 32 neurosciences centres, and of those, exactly half actually have dedicated neurocritical care units. Mm. Um, And that's very different, I think, to the Australian situation where we do have some dedicated neurocritical care units, but in general, um, you know, uh, neurosciences patients are managed within a general unit. Um, There's one exception to that, and I think that is with trauma. So we have, uh, you know, um, have high volume streams for trauma. And what that means is that neurotrauma in Australia tends to be managed at a specialist centre. And you can see the effect of that with, you know, some landmark papers um, coming out of ANZICs that have, you know, really uh, changed the way that we manage, um, you know, traumatic brain injury. So I think with the exception of neurotrauma, um, the, you know, other, other neurosciences patients tend to be managed within a general medical unit. And so why do you feel that there is a need for specialised neurointensive care units. I mean, intensive care provides generally superb care for multi-organ failure. Why is the brain as an organ warrant kind of special input? So I guess the brain is, uh, I, I guess there's two reasons. One is the, just with respect to neurocritical care, uh, the brain is exquisitely um, sensitive to acute insults. And I think for each sort of neurosciences uh, patient, there needs to be a very good in-depth understanding of the disease process, uh, of the pathophysiology and how that disease might progress. And I think that's different to, so you're, uh, to perhaps general critical care. So you're not just treating the lung, Mm. you know, you're actually treating um, a a sequence and a progression of of disease. And that actually also requires meticulous um, attention. Um, The difficulty is that you also need to be able to provide critical care to other extracranial organs. Um, So the other thing I think is the power of the, the MDT. These are complex uh, diseases which really uh, have have developed um, into you know a multidisciplinary uh, mode of management. So with particularly with interventional neuroradiologists, neurosurgeons, and neurology. Um, but you know, as I said, even the the neurorehabilitation requirements for these patients, you know, are extraordinary and need to be commenced within the neurocritical care within the you know, day one of of. Um, of illness, not once the patient's been discharged to the ward. Um, now, your de- description of the unit back in Oxford and um, the rationale to have such units make perfect sense. You know, you, this, these are complex patients with um, l- that you can see would benefit from people dealing with the same pathology and patient cohorts day in, day out. But most importantly, is there evidence that this kind of setup improves patient outcome? So it's a good question. And it's actually a very difficult to answer question as any question of evidence is. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, what, uh, to summarise, I think there's a relatively large volume of relatively weak 
evidence. Right. Now, some of the problems are that um, studies looking to show that neurocritical care makes a difference just look at mortality. And obviously, neuroscience's patients you know, that survive their disease have a very high burden of disability. Mm. Uh, so we really need to be looking at outcome. And functional outcome at six months is one thing, but we do know that actually it continues to improve to one, three, and even five years. So to do studies of that um, you know, following up is is very, uh, you know, it requires a lot of um, resources. Mm. Uh, so that's number one. The other thing is often there's his, there are historical controls or the, the evidence is often retrospective. Um, and I guess the other thing is that, um, you know, what outcomes do we, do we want? Um, obviously, functional clinical outcomes are important, but there can also be other outcomes, which I'm not in fact aware of, but I think would be fairly easy to look at. And that's things like training opportunities, uh, research outputs, patient and family satisfaction, etc. Um, so I, I guess that is one thing. And then in terms of going into the evidence, there, there's two trials that I think are worth looking at mm. um, a, a, and and outside of that you'll just have to take my point that there's a large, <laughs> a relatively large volume of relatively weak evidence. But two trials of interest are the RAIN study, which is a, um, a UK study. It invited all intensive care units in the UK um, and ended up having... I think 13 uh, intensive care, neuro, dedicated neuro ICU units that participated. And that had several arms. But one of the aims of that was to try to look at uh, measure outcome following traumatic brain injury um, and to measure sort of functional outcome at, at quite a depth, a, a depth of quality actually, um, and then compare the cost effectiveness of exactly what we've been talking about, dedicated neuro ICUs versus um, neurocritical care units within general um, uh, general units that had neurosciences um, facilities versus intensive care units that had no neuroscience facilities. Mm. And what that showed is that there was actually an improved outcome. It looked at, uh, I think it was just over 3,000 patients uh, and there was about roughly half of the patients uh, in dedicated uh, neuro ICU. So the patients... Uh, with severe traumatic brain injury had improved functional outcome at six months. Um, but then it tried to look at the cost effectiveness of the outcomes in terms of qualies. And it showed that the cost was actually relatively small. So it was something like a lifetime cost of £14,000 as an additional per quali saved. An additional cost For, of, compared to compared having a patient to on a... Without, okay, uh, yeah, on yeah. A, um, within a neurosciences centre, yeah. but not in a dedicated neuro yeah. ICU. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, the problem was, of course, there were a lot of um, computations and, uh, you know, sort of statistics that went into that. And the authors were very, you know, um, it was a really good quality paper. The authors are very careful to say that there's a lot of statistical uncertainty around that. Um, but I think it's of use to the neurocritical care um, uh, population or, you know, the, um, the neurocritical care group yeah. uh, because it at least shows that the costs weren't just completely uneconomical. Yeah. So I think that's 
um, is a good study. And it's actually a study that's very worth reading because it just gives great epidemiology of head injury in the UK. The second study that's worth looking at is uh, the PRINT study, which was a point of um, prevalence study. And that had two parts to it. And the first thing was it looked at the global distribution of dedicated neuro ICUs. Unsurprisingly, oh, yeah. most of them are in North America, Europe, and the UK. I guess we have to call separate the UK from Europe you now with do, sadly, Brexit. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then it also um, set a specific date and um, prospectively, again, it was prospective, um, collected data on all admissions to all neurosciences admissions from that date and followed the patients. Um, and that found that absence of a dedicated neurocritical care unit in a hospital was a significant independent predictor of mortality. Again, only looking at mortality, but a useful study nevertheless because it was it's, pro, it's prospective um, and, and, and again, well, a well-carried-out study. I think the other question about cost or the other comment that needs to be made is that neurosciences patients uh, comprise between 20 and 25% of critical care admissions. Mm. So in actual fact, if, you, if, if there's any specialist unit that you wanted to invest in, it would yeah. make good sense that you would choose neurocritical care. Uh, and and also it does have other sort of reach. It reaches out to other units. So, for example, um, you know, all other units will have uh, acquired acute brain injury. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's it's very much it can be extrapolated to any critical care. Um, and so this may be a very difficult question to answer, but w are we aware of what? components to the neurointensive care uh, care management that 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 seems to make the difference you know, do we know what 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 are the kind of the key factors to that care patient pathway so one very clear factor is volume of practice and actually that's a key factor in management outside of critical care with stroke management so for example the american consensus uh, guidelines um mandate a minimum of uh, something like 50 patients per institution per year um, for um, mechanical thrombectomy following large volume occlusion, acute ischemic stroke. And then it goes further and it mandates um, or, you know, it, it recommends a minimum um, patient interventional load per individual interventionalists. So and that's based on the back of um, very good evidence with uh, acute ischemic stroke that high volume centres have better outcomes. So I think it's that the high volume is the first thing and that means that you see clinical pathways are established, um, there's, you know, experiential learning and pattern recognition and that's equally um, equally effective for medical staff as well as for nursing staff. Uh, with the volume comes um, the, the economics of resource investment then mm. ends up being uh, much more um, appropriate, if that makes sense. So, you know, you can afford to invest in proper um, proper imaging, neurophysiology, all of the, the, the usual wish list requirements. I, the second thing is without a doubt the 
multidisciplinary team so that the as we sort of have already mentioned these disease processes these patients need to be managed you know with equal input from all members of the of the MDT beginning with the morning ward round mm-hmm. um, which has to be quite snappy when you're leading a group of neurosurgeons <laughs> I must say um, the third thing would be uh, multimodal monitoring, and that's not just brain tissue PO2. That's also imaging, um, you know, CT, MRI, all of the usual, um, as well as neurophysiology, uh, you know. Um, and then I guess the final thing is is algorithms and protocols. I think that's a little bit less strangely enough you would think it's less uh relevant to the neurocritical care unit although traditionally they were very much protocol management I, mm. I see the neurocritical care unit as the instigator of best practice and as the design you know for sort of um the authoring of the protocols the reviewing and providing the evidence base that's then very useful to um for use by non uh neuroscience it's non neuro intensive care units but within the expertise of a neuro intensive care unit there's a bit of absolutely so the adherence and the fact that you're you have a framework um, of sort of algorithm management, you know, that just supports that meticulous attention to detail. But more and more we are moving away from that sort of protocolised management to more individualised management um, for for each each patient. Um, Um, And you mentioned, you know, with, with, with the evidence of improved outcome that there's a reasonably large volume of reasonably weak uh, evidence. Now, do you, th- one, do you think we will be able to ever get definitive evidence on this? But two, do we need to? Or can we just take a pragmatic approach that, look, there seems to be a benefit and it makes sense, so let's go with it? Good question. I th- I think that with all of these different vignettes, if you like, that's provided by all of the different studies, I think the narrative is that it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. But uh, healthcare is costly, and I think all um, critical care units need to be, you know, really carefully keeping data and monitoring and developing. So. I I think we always need to be asking the question, is what we, you know, how can we do better but is what we are doing the right thing Is it co- and, and is it cost effective? So I, I think that we should still be looking at the, you know, looking at um, trying to answer that question. I don't think we're there yet. And I also think that because so many patients have, uh, you, know, neuros- you know, neuroscience patients are so prevalent, and how and because non patients that might not be appropriate for um, care on a neurointensive care unit, um, you know, may require care on a general intensive care unit. We we need to be looking at you know how we work and what things fu- would function better within a neuro general unit, and what things would uh, you know are, are the key bits for the neurocritical care. Um. And what would you view if any other controversies related to the establishment or uh, existence of neurointensive care units? So I think the first controversy, which we've already spoken about, is is it cost effective? Mm. Um, the second controversy is 
are we providing uh, appropriate standards of our general um, critical care? I think that we always mm. have to ask that. We have to have very clear you know, there needs to be very clear reasons for why the patient, where the patient should be for any unit. Um, and the, the, the way that we can sort of reassure ourselves, I guess, is that all, all intensive care units need to, um, you know, be collecting mandatory benchmark performances and sort of taking part in the national, you know, data registry so they can look at themselves against... Um, critical care or all critical care units mm. um, for sort of just to, just to, to monitor key quality indicators. Um, and so going forward, what, what do you view is the best infrastructure for caring for these neurosurgical, neurological, critically ill patients? Um, have we struck a balance at the moment or where do you see it going in, in the future? Are you talking about development within Australia, or just, or perhaps development within the UK? Or where? Well, my idea. What would you view as the ideal structure within a healthcare system that best looks after these patients? So, I think that the the, the evidence is there to you know from the high volume um, of practice. Um, point of view that we should be having dedicated neurocritical care units in neurosciences centres, um, but that they should have very close links, so really be part of a, an overall critical care delivery group. It doesn't, to me, matter where the geography is. I think ideally uh, they would be a wing um, of a general, general critical care unit to just sort of um, promote the, those sorts of working relationships. However, if it turned out that that was a conflict against um, co-location for immediate access to um, the, the neuro-MDT and in particular imaging, uh, then I would choose co-location with the neuroscience facilities. Um, I also think that we should be striving to have a very strong um, professional society, bodies or societies, if you like. And I think one thing I haven't mentioned is the um, American Society for Neurosciences, Anesthesia and Critical Care and the UK Neuroanesthesia and Critical Care Societies, um, which are, are slightly um, more involved and have a, a, a greater professional responsibility than special interest groups, which we have here in, the, in Australia. I think that's really important um, to be able to, you know, have consensus guidelines for optimal management, um, you know, requirements for service delivery, etc. And certainly the College of Anaesthetists in the, in the UK has two really good documents on um, provision of services. One is GPICS, which is the provision of intensive care services, and they have a very big um, uh, sort of section on neurocritical care. And in fact, the um, provision of anaesthetic services document has a huge section on uh, neuroanesthesia, um, which is well worth uh, any neuroanesthetic department um, coming to grips with. The other thing I guess 
in terms of the infrastructure is the um, relationship to referring hospitals because even in Australia patients don't just all come into the one tertiary centre. So I think yeah. making sure that those patients are correctly managed right from the point of injury, so from the point of stroke or, you know, the ictus of a ruptured aneurysm, really uh, reaching out and making sure that that's, um, you know, optimal clinical care right from the beginning is really important. I think that's very well developed in the UK and possibly less developed here in Australia. And I think the final thing is um, using the neurocritical care um, unit as a hub for training for um, general intensive care uh, um, and also for anaesthetists. So, you know, where you can get really sort of very quickly refine your neuroanesthesia skills. Look, Hilary, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time and talking to us today. It was fascinating, lovely to chat, um, and we hope you enjoyed uh, listening. And please remember to check out the rest of the Monash Perioptive Medicine podcast series. Thank you. Thank you.